So over 100,000 migrants have arrived in New York City since last summer. That might sound like a lot, but it's not actually a historically large number for the city. So what makes this a crisis? You know, it's like a crisis of the response, basically. You know, it's not a crisis of numbers, but it's a, it's a crisis of, like, what are we going to do in New York from government officials? Um, it's a political crisis. You know, you've got sort of the city trying to figure out what its relationship is with these 100,000 people who've shown up and asked for services in the last year, year and a half. That's Eric Latch, one of the writers I edit at The New Yorker. He's just written a piece about the state of the migrant crisis in New York City. We're seeing asylum seekers arrive from all over the world, not just Latin America, but from countries throughout Africa. And they are facing unique challenges trying to access social services. Many new arrivals are ending up in homeless shelters that were already at capacity, or they're sleeping on the street. You're listening to The Political Scene. I'm Tyler Foggett, and I'm a senior editor at The New Yorker. How are the migrants who are coming now different than the migrants who were coming before? Like, I was reading that, you know, we saw 130,000 migrants come in 2016, which is actually more than what we've seen since last summer. And, you know, clearly what's happening in New York is so big that even my family in Arizona and in Indiana, you know, they're constantly texting me what's happening in New York, right. what's, you know, migrant crisis. Right. Well, it's it's different in a couple of ways, but principally because simply it's become a news story. Um, you know, I- immigration to New York City is as old as New York City. Yeah. But the reason it's getting the amount of attention that it's, you know, to the point where we're having this discussion now is that one is because of the way that people are arriving in the city. So it used to be that poor immigrants to New York City just kind of disappeared into the city. You know, immigrants from other countries often found places to live with pre-existing communities from their home country, sometimes from their home, you know, villages, friends of friends or cousins or an aunt or somebody in their network who they find to crash with until they're sort of up on their feet. And that has significantly changed in that, you know, thousands of people a month are now showing up and going directly to the city and saying, I need somewhere to stay. Is that because they don't have pre-existing networks in the city because they're coming from countries that haven't already kind of established those networks? You know, in, in doing the reporting for some of these stories that we've done recently on on the migrants coming to the city, I mean, one of the things to keep in mind is also just like nobody was tracking exactly how many undocumented immigrants were showing up in New York City a few years ago because the whole nature of the system was that they were undocumented. They were coming here in ways that that weren't necessarily official, and so there were no official numbers. So it's hard to say, sort of, it's something that we just don't have the best data for about, like, sort of, is there more or less or whatever. But what we can say now is that particularly how this all started, which was sort of around the time and, and and sort of spurred by the buses that were sent to New York City by Texas's governor, Greg Abbott. Most of the people on those buses were Venezuelans. And, you know, the explanation, particularly early on, was that part of the reason that these people were showing up in such need is that there just, you know, historically had not been as much emigration from Venezuela to the United States and to New York in particular, as there had been from Mexico or Guatemala or many other countries in Latin America. And so Venezuelans were were just showing up in town without that cousin to call, without that friend of a friend, with no pre-existing network. And so they just had nowhere else to turn. But the other thing that happened 
is that because Texas's governor, Abbott, made such a show of packing people into these buses and sort of dispatching them to New York, there was a political response in New York City that was like, you know, very well intended of showing the people on these buses that New York was not like Texas, that we were not going to treat them inhumanely by just shipping them around to wherever. That, that so basically what happened is that when these buses started showing up at the big bus terminal in Manhattan, uh, the Port Authority. Um, so it wasn't like Mayor Adams there to welcome them? Yeah, you had you had Adams and, and other city officials, plus nonprofit groups and community groups, and they all set up tables at the Port Authority, welcome stations. And at those tables, they tried to help people. And, you know, some of it was sort of basics like toiletries and lunch packs and, 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 and sort of just immediate need stuff. But there was also a sort of whole range of information that was communicated to people about what services were available in New York City. Including New York City's right to shelter laws? Including the shelter system, which was not information that was before communicated to new immigrants necessarily, one by one individually. Hey, you should know, if you need a place to stay, here's how to enter the shelter system. Here are the rules of the shelter system. Here's some information in Spanish if you don't speak English. I mean, there was, you know, a kind of effort made to to do outreach. And that information soon started to spread beyond just, you know, the the people who were getting off the buses sent by Abbott, that that information through word of mouth and on social media, you know, it was just like Venezuelan migrants and soon immigrants from other countries generally just sort of showed up in the city with some awareness of that already. Before we talk about just the sheer diversity of migrants that we've been seeing in the city, I'm wondering if you can just explain in a bit more detail New York's right to shelter laws and how unusual they are nationally. I will try because they're complicated. So New York City, essentially as as a result of a series of lawsuits, sort of particularly in the early 80s, basically ends up with a kind of unique set of rules that that sort of fall under the umbrella of like the right to shelter. So basically what that means roughly is that anybody in the city in need of a place to stay each night must be given a, a place to sleep. And, you know, I think the law is written, sort of just applies to men. And then there was a whole fight over families and, and, and also just this growth of the shelter system as it exists in New York City for good and for bad. Because these congregate shelters, I mean, it's, it's gigantic. It's a huge system. Part of the reason this became a political crisis is that New York City already had a long-running homelessness crisis that stretches back decades at this point of people languishing, thousands of people languishing in shoddy, you know, city shelters. And the shelter system had already reached historically large numbers before this, you know, the the, the migrants that we're all talking about sort of started coming in. And the question of what to do about that and what that meant and what some of the solutions might be um, were some of the sort of most intractable problems in New York City politics. You've interviewed so many New York politicians over the years, and I'm wondering if people who work in um, New York City government, if they're proud of the right to shelter laws and it's the kind of thing that, you know, we have been vocal about over the years is like sort of one of the selling points of New York City or whether, you know, it either has been or has become something that's just sort of incredibly politically 
counterproductive, you know, something that politicians have to deal with, basically, just this idea that if you come to New York, we will need to find you a place to stay. And this gets at some of the dynamics, I think, that, that are going on with the migrants themselves, where, you know, it's like this question of political generosity has been something that stumps city politicians. You know, homelessness advocates and the homeless themselves, you know, for all the righteous criticisms and all the problems that they have identified with the shelters themselves as sort of individual institutions and and, and, and kind of the dynamics that they foster, no one, I think, wants to give up the right to shelter. I think that that is, a, you know, it's considered a kind of hard-won legal victory that should open possibilities, not close them. But um, in the past couple of decades, basically, um, you know, it's also been something that, that, you know, the city has just not been able to find the political will to fund these shelters at a level that is decent for people to stay in. I mean, a lot of these places, especially the big congregate shelters where you have to pass through sort of the first step in the sort of entering into the shelter system, these big congregate shelters, and they are incredibly bleak. They are incredibly tough places for people to stay. You know, you have to stomach it if you go in there. It's something to be endured. And that problem and what to do about it is just not something that anybody in a position of power had been able to solve for, even though there had been some people who I think really wanted to solve it or, or address it. You recently wrote a piece um, that included a very harrowing story about um, a shelter that a group of West African migrants had been sent to. Could you talk a little bit about sort of the um, the influx of West African migrants that we've been seeing, but just what happened at that specific shelter? Yeah, so, um, and, and this is also sort of part of the complexity of this situation. So, so you have the pre-existing shelters. Some were big facilities, some were little facilities, some were for single men, some were for families. They're sort of all over town. There's different levels of services that they offer. Some of them are run by one city agency, some of them are run by others. When the migrants start showing up, you add on to that this whole other layer of like emergency shelters and uh, what are called respite centers. The migrants are sent not necessarily to the pre-existing shelters that other people had already been staying in, but many are, are put up in hotels. There's sort of emergency facilities that are set up on Randall's Island, an island off of in the East River, like off the northern Manhattan. You know, and so they're, they're kind of opening and closing. Over the course of the year, it's sort of needs shifted. There's places opening and closing all the time, subcontractors being brought in to open these places and whatever. And so there was Basically, there was a, a, a location in Bushwick, outer Brooklyn, um, sort of historically kind of working class neighborhood. And a couple hundred mostly African migrants were brought to this facility. And when they were brought there, they found that there was very little access to running water, very little access to bathrooms. Yeah. And, you know, one of the questions that came up when they were sent there was because the city had has at times seemed to attempt to try to group people by country of origin to keep at least, you know, people... Some semblance of community together. Yeah, you know, people share common languages and sort of cultural contexts. But when basically, you know, a couple busloads of African migrants show up at this shelter that's just not fit for people to stay, the question that they naturally start asking is like, why were only Africans sent here? Why were we sent here? Why were we chosen to send here? So, Eric, how many of the the migrants who have been coming to New York City, you know, since last summer, how many of them have been from West Africa? Yeah. So, you know, originally 
these buses that Abbott was sending, mostly Venezuelans. You know, the first couple months of this sort of situation, it was like that was the story. It was like this is mostly Venezuelans fleeing sort of the political and economic unraveling of Venezuela in large numbers showing up in New York. But then in the last, you know, six months or since the winter, you know, the proportion of Venezuelans has been going down in the total number of, of migrants being tracked now by the city. The city's got, like, rough numbers on sort of where these people come from. And it's about 40% from Venezuela. Um, and then Peruvians and Ecuadorians also kind of make up a big chunk. Um, but then you've got, like, uh, Mauritanians, 4%. Uh, Senegalese, like, 2%. You know, 10% of the city's numbers is just other. Uh, many of those people are from Africa. There's West Africans. There's a small but steadily growing communities of West Africans that have been in the city since the 80s, about 200,000 people, like sort of 1.5, 2% of the city population overall. But then the migrants who have been showing up in shelters and who have been sort of reaching out to community groups in the last months are from all over the continent. I mean, they're from Chad, they're from Madagascar, they're from Angola, they're from countries that have historically had very little emigration to New York City, very, very very little presence of, like, people born in those countries in, in the city before. And and sort of now it seems like it's it's just kind of an all-over sort of phenomenon. So basically they're migrating from Chad or Mauritania to Latin America and then um, sort of migrating north from there into the U.S. Yeah, right? I mean, this, it's like this, the same route. This, this is the this is, you know, that I, I report on New York City. So so my reporting on sort of the, the migration <laughs> routes and in the, the global sort of routes is just the New Yorkers view of it. But basically what what, you know, I've talked to people about is that, you know, for years it's been known that African migrants have been reaching New York after first crossing the United States is border with Mexico. Some of those people are people who have like emigrated from their home countries to places like Brazil or Argentina or, you know, elsewhere in South America and tried to sort of set up life there. And then for whatever reason, after some period of time, decide not to stay there and have sort of joined the sort of migration flows north uh, to the U.S. And, and other people sort of make that marathon sort of multi hemisphere journey in as close to one go as they can. There's been reporting on, you know, Mauritanians in particular sort of discovering that there's the visa rules with Nicaragua mean that they can fly there without having to declare sort of what their future travel plans are. So they land in Nicaragua and then sort of make arrangements to sort of move north from there and to make it eventually to the U.S. It's an amazing, kind of astounding amount of work and travel I mean, the journey is difficult. And then, you know, as you wrote in your recent piece, once they get here, it seems like it's also, you know, even more challenging for them than it might be for, you know, migrant groups that are coming from Venezuela or from Latin America. Yeah. Basically, what this article that, that we just worked on together is about is that when African migrants started showing up in numbers at the shelters, you know, New York City has a, you know, historically large percentage of its population speaks Spanish. It offers social services pretty robustly in Spanish. Obviously, this is all relative, but like pretty robustly. But African migrants were showing up. They spoke French. They spoke Wolof. They spoke Fula. They spoke languages that the city 
did not have, even if some information is printed out in French, like it didn't have the same kind of like at the shelters, at social service agencies, like they just don't have speakers of these languages on hand. And trying to navigate New York City without being able to communicate is impossible. And that's sort of the situation that many of these migrants found themselves in, which is part of the reason they started turning to groups like the group that was in the piece that we just published, uh, African Communities Together, which is a, a nonprofit group that was founded 10 years ago to support and advocate for and organize uh, African diaspora communities in the U.S. And what kind of success have they had? I mean, they've done a tremendous amount of work. They have a New York City office in Harlem. Um, they've got an office in Philadelphia and Washington, D.C. and Arlington, Virginia. And sort of they, they do all kinds of work and sort of robust work, but it's not a huge staff. Like the New York City office is a couple of rooms in a former public school building. And they, they had from January to June, they had 1,000 people come into their office. Wow. And, you know, and now it's, 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 it's months later. So it's like uh, it might be 2,000. Thousands of people have come asking for help, and they've tried to help. Uh, and what, what does help mean? I mean, is that like finding shelter or is that applying for a work permit? Is that like starting the process of like, you know, applying for asylum? Like what does that It's like kind of entail? all of the above. I mean, the, you know, the language stuff has been the foundational thing, you know. So, so, so the, the asks have ranged from small to big, but all kind of the, the underlying request is like, please help me in the language that I speak. Yeah. Um, and there's a sort of language co-op that they've fostered at, at, at African Communities Together that offers services in 10 or more languages. I mean, they've helped uh, Muslim migrants uh, request and obtain halal food in shelters, space for prayer, access to water to wash for prayer, you know, basic day-to-day stuff to, like, helping understand the rules and the structures of the shelter system. You know, when people get placed in certain neighborhoods in the shelter and want to understand where they are, you know, why they're there, what their options are if they don't like it there, that kind of thing. Even people who speak English, you know, struggle with these things, how to navigate the city's sprawling shelter system. Yes, um, and just the range of things that you have questions about. Like many of these people are applying for asylum, the paperwork, um, helping people who want to or can leave the shelters or, or haven't shown up in the shelters. Because the shelters, they're saying, I think the latest number is uh, 116,000 migrants have shown up in town since last summer, and something like 60,000 are in shelters still. So about half are not, you know, and so uh, finding apartments, orienting yourself in New York City. And there's a small sort of constellation of these groups and and ACT is sort of a a part of that. And how do groups like ACT work with the city? What kind of collaboration is happening there? Yeah. So the story basically is is sort of we told it in the in the piece is buses with many Venezuelans start arriving Venezuelan and, and by extension, Spanish-speaking migrants start sharing information about social services and shelters in New York City on social media and with their networks. I think in the piece you say on TikTok even, right? On TikTok, I think city officials, frankly, were floored at how fast the information spread and have spent a good deal of time and effort 
in the past year, like trying to like reporting videos about the right well, to shelter, kind of like <laughs> trying to counter that spread of information on social media. It's like they put out sort of information like p- pamphlets in Spanish, like New York City is very expensive. Just FYI, like just so you know, like they're conscious of this sort of conversation that people are having globally at this point about sort of why New York might be a, a good place to come move to if you are looking for a place to have a fresh start. So, but initially it it seems like the information about these services and the shelters was pretty contained to Spanish-speaking migrants and that African migrants weren't participating in those same conversations, weren't being let into those same conversations. And so in the wintertime, they were arriving in town and trying to situate themselves, as we said in the piece, the old-fashioned way, which is just like turning to pre-existing immigrant communities, often poor communities, for help. So basically the city over the winter heard from a imam in the Bronx who was sheltering dozens of people in the basement of his mosque every night. It's a windowless room. It's December, January. It's cold in New York City. And basically the city finds out about this and then, you know, arrangements were basically made to trans because there was sort of a centralized process already, an intake sort of process for migrants in the city. Mm -hmm. And so they basically brought the people who were in the mosque basement to the intake centers. And basically that's how sort of African migrants started to find out about what had been going on and what services were available. And the city brought in ACT you know, in a supporting role at that point to help with languages and just to help distribute toiletries and and, and just for manpower. They basically requested an ACT sort of like came in and and and, and, and sort of helped. Um, and that's sort of semi been formalized sort of as the year has gone on. Like, all you know, all the whole response has been a complex and complicated mix of the city government in argument with the state and the federal government, but then also sort of nonprofit groups and then subcontractors and that kind of swirl of those entities then providing the services in, in, in various forms. But what ACT found, you know, is that like basically people just kept showing up at the ACT office and their sense is that like basically the, the services and the shelters and, and what people, African migrants were encountering in the shelters and the help they were getting in the shelters, you know, wasn't going all the way. And people were being left in need. And then word got out that African Communities Together's office in Harlem was a place you could go if you needed more help. And then people started showing up. And then more people started showing up. And then, like, basically there's a line out the door. So next I want to ask you about um, just the kind of support that Eric Adams has been trying to get from the federal government and, you know, his pleas to President Biden. But first we're going to take a break. Um, So we'll have more with Eric Latch on the political scene from The New Yorker in just a minute. So, you know, as we said earlier, at the beginning of all of this, Eric Adams was, you know, sort of there to meet migrants who were arriving on the buses at, at the Port Authority. And, you know, recently he's, you know, he's changed his tune a little bit. We're getting no support on this national crises, and we're receiving no support. And let me tell you something, New Yorkers. Never in my life have I had a problem that I did not see an ending to. 
I don't see an ending to this. I don't see an ending to this. This issue will destroy New York City. Destroy New York City. So when he asks for support, what support can Biden give him? Yeah, I mean, the mayor, his frustration with this issue has bubbled over several times in ways that has only led to more frustration with him from all parties, I think. You know, you asked a question earlier about sort of the shelter system and just like New York City has, you know, again, this is relative, but like offers relatively robust resources to people in need compared to other U.S. cities, not compared to the need of the individual peoples. And it expends for a city a, a relatively large amount of money on these services and basically sheltering all of these people for the past year and a half is running up a giant tab. And, you know, the mayor's argument has been that New York and New York City taxpayers shouldn't have to put that tab. You know, I'm, I'm from Arizona, and I feel like if the mayor there, you know, Phoenix had said, we need more support from Biden because of all of the, um, you know, migrants we're getting. That would obviously refer to, like, we need to close the border. Like, there were calls for that all the time, you know, yeah. like, just increased scrutiny of the border. And um, But when Adams asks for help, is it, like, fewer buses from Texas? More, like, does he... No, he's of, asking for dollars. He's he saying, like, dollars. basically, like, you know, it's going to cost us, I think the numbers are roughly, like, you know, it's like, we've already spent $2 billion it's going to cost $4 billion this year, just the, the response, and something like $12 billion over the next couple of years. Um, those are the numbers that the city government is sort of putting out there. It's like, hey, this is this is the extra money that we're spending. And, and, and for context, New York City's budget is like a little over $100 billion mm-hmm. a year. You know, so it's, it's not like, oh, my God, we're doubling the city budget here, you know, when we're talking about like billions of dollars. But it is, you know, it's a significant expense and a drag on the city budget budget. And I think also Adams senses, I think it's safe to say that he's right on this, even if you don't agree with his methods or his outlook or his priorities. This is an issue that's fraught with political danger and political liability. And being tagged as the person responsible for a giant immigration mess is not something you want as a politician in the United States of America, that that's a politically lethal situation. So in part, you know, he's been asking for the the White House to sort of send more money. But I think he's also been asking for the White House to take more ownership of the issue. Well, that's kind of what I was wondering, like if he just wants the rhetoric that's coming out of the White House to be to be different. Yeah. You know, I mean, he's you know, he's asking for uh, you know, the, the things that he's asking for are, are pretty broad. Dollars, a, a quote-unquote decompression stat strategy. You know, there's a former airfield in South Brooklyn where they're going to put a, a giant sort of emergency shelter um, that's going to house like a couple thousand people. But the more fraught thing, I think, and, and this is not something that I have investigated myself in terms of the relationship between City Hall and the White House, but, you know, the reporting is that this issue has contributed to sort of a rift between Adams and Biden, the Biden administration. But Adams has kept on it. I mean, I think he's also, you know, he's had outbursts, you know, like you said a couple of weeks ago, you talked about sort of this issue potentially destroying New York. And I think he's just, you know, he's he's really wanted to 
avoid the appearance of 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 wanting this issue or wanting this to be his thing. And he's he's turned the temperature up. It's it's been a contrast to, you know, the mayor of Chicago, um, Brandon Johnson, a couple of weeks ago. You know, they're having problems there too. You know, in some ways, I think it's for New York. Like it's it's always this way. I mean, New York just has large resources and bigger problems. So it's like we have this giant shelter system and this giant shelter capacity. Well, that's exactly it, right? I mean, I think it's interesting that, um, you know, part of the reason why this is such a crisis, as you were saying, is that all of the homeless shelters where we, you know, are trying to house migrants, you know, the emergency shelter system that we're kind of, you know, putting into place or that we're, you know, turning hotels into shelters for migrants, that all of those resources had already been expended on you know, the homeless population in the city. But it's interesting because, like, you know, homelessness in New York City, that is a crisis, too. But you can't blame that one on Joe Biden. But, like, you know, migrants, you can't. But I think the way that, you know— If you're Adams. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But then, you know, just to continue the point, the other issue is, you know, now the city's in crisis mode over migrants and, and housing them and getting them situated and getting them resources. And what do you tell people— who have been living in the shelter system for several years where well, we're prioritizing these people, you know, the sense of urgency, the sense of emergency was not there when it was just, you know, a couple tens of thousands of families with kids in the shelters. Yeah, who are also looking for jobs and you know, yeah, trying to get out of the shelter system. Help and, 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 and resources. And that was a major issue in the city. And sort of a significant part of, like, New York City's story right now. But it was never national news night after night. Yeah. You know, it was never something that you could you could demand attention from the White House, even if the White House was going to ignore you. It was just a kind of local problem. And, you know, an embarrassing one. And not, you know, a crisis. You know, I was reading that one of the things that Mayor Adams and, you know, the governor have been asking President Biden for is for Biden to grant the asylum seekers in New York work permits. What are the politics around that? I mean, how long does it take normally to get a work permit? And why is it? I think, frankly, it's all very confusing. Even the language that we're using, you know, asylum (laughs) seekers, it's like many of these people have applied for asylum, but not all of them. But we're calling them all asylum seekers because that's a legal term. Well, this is also one of the more interesting parts of your piece, which I would love to talk a bit more about, which is the way in which um, a lot of the new arrivals in New York City. I mean, over the years, it seems like there's been this shift from the way that we we think about migrants and the way that migrants think about themselves. So, I mean, even the fact that, you know, when I talk to my, you know, dad on the phone, he's asking about the illegal immigrants in New York City, whereas well, we're talking about, you know, the undocumented exactly. citizens. Yeah, And this word migrants. I mean, I spent some time asking around to people like, why Why are we using the word migrant, you know, and not immigrant? Like, we're like, you know, and I was, I asked city officials this, I asked activists this, I, I asked the people who have been using this language. I mean, it's complicated. It's sort of a swirl of things. Part of it is because in uh, Latin America and the press, like migrantes is like the word that's sort mm-hmm. of in circulation. And so like, that's the word that's sort of been picked up here. Partially it's because migrant seems to connote a kind of like intransitness, you know, like that's not quite uh. settled, you know, whereas, but like, you know, we're just, we're like. That's yeah. interesting because you always think like New York City is like a city of immigrants and now we're a city of migrants. Migrants, but, you know, it's, yeah. like, it's such a, it's, uh, to me, it's a very unsatisfying word. I don't know why we just can't call them immigrants. You know, Adams has wanted to, and there's been sort of a legal fight about sending on some of these people to other cities in New York State or whatever. But I, I think the reality is most of these people are here yeah. and are going to stay here. 
And so, you know, so, so like, they're New Yorkers. They're New Yorkers. <laughs> and yeah, let's migrant... talk a little bit about that. I mean, it seems like over the years, there's also been an increase in the number of people who are coming and actively seeking asylum going through the, that process. Yeah. Yeah. That, I mean, that's that's been a story at the southern border for years. The situation we're talking about now is that phenomenon and that sort of paradigm coming to New York, arriving in New York. And one of the things that people I talked to for this story, you know, kept bringing up independent of each other, you know, is like people used to show up in New York City and they were undocumented. That was the term that they had to accept. And undocumented meant that they lived in a kind of gray area. Uh, New York was a sanctuary city, but they didn't have certain documents and they lived a certain way and kind of arranged themselves politically in the city a certain way. And now, in the past year, the people showing up in town are not buying into that arrangement. Um, They're not accepting it. They're saying, I'm here. Uh, Whether or not they're applying for asylum, technically, a lot of them do use that term, asylum. And they are sort of taking a stance that says, like, they're basically taking for granted some political rights that new arrivals in New York City have not historically done. Um, and the right to shelter is sort of the the most obvious one and the most expensive one for the city. But that, in a way, it's sort of a the era of, like, undocumented immigration in New York City looks like it might be ending because the era of like the asylum seeker has begun. And that is a sort of a different kind of migration, a different kind of new arrival. So um, Michael Bloomberg, who used to be the mayor of New York City, recently wrote an op-ed where he basically said, um, you know, we have a system that allows an unlimited number of people to cross the borders, forbids them to work, offers them free housing, and grants them seven years of residency before ruling on whether they can legally stay. Is that a fair characterization? Again, from the New York City perspective, you know, Washington has stopped being able to do anything, really, on on immigration for more than a decade. And New York City has been kind of chugging along, even though, you know, Washington has been unable to kind of sort of address the issue. But now that has shifted. And now that, again, that's part of Adams's argument is like, okay, we've got a major issue here. New York City is, you know, the biggest city in the country by far. Uh, We need to address this stuff. Like, let's address it. Again, this is is a Washington story. It's sort of a longer story. Um, But I think something I've feel like I am in a position to say is like part of the reason the immigration status quo was able to just stay this way for this long without Washington being able to act is like New York was sort of just fine with it. You know, yeah. it wasn't an issue here. We were just handling it. We were just we were, handling we were able it. To deal with you know, it it's because, like, it's yeah. like, you know, the, like poor immigrants were showing up. Other poor people were taking them in. They were doing, you know, off the books jobs. And the city was saying, we want these people here, sort of, even though we're not, you know, we're not going to go out of our way to, like, make their housing affordable or protect them from sort of gray economy jobs where they're paid terrible wages. Yeah, I mean, it still sucks. But, you know, New York City, I think, got a lot out of being able to say, you know, we are a sanctuary city. Yeah. Yeah. And that arrangement has broken. Whatever kind of rickety balance was struck, you know, was was achieved, it has been lost. 
And now New York, you know, like like your home state of Arizona or in Texas. Politicians with very different politics from New York politicians, but politicians have been yelling for years that immigration is a crisis. And basically New York wasn't. And now New York is. New York politicians have now started to freak out. You know, and and that's and like, that's why this is a crisis. And that's why this is a crisis. I think that that's where I'm landing. I mean, it's become a crisis for politicians because now it's become politicians' jobs to figure this out, and and not just border state politicians, and not just border state politicians, and that principally is the mayor's job. He's not happy about it. You know, it's not something that he you know he didn't run on being the mayor that would solve an immigration crisis for the city. He has other stuff that he wanted to do, and but he's been forced to deal with this for a year, and, and it does threaten to swallow not the city, but his administration. Yeah. That's the biggest part, crisis of all, that's in, in his part, eyes. That's yeah. in part what's been driving him. I mean, it's been, you know, the city government has put in a ton of work on this. It's been all kinds of agencies, and, and it's the big thing that the city's had to deal with this year. Thank you so much, Eric. Thanks for having me. Eric Latch is a staff writer at The New Yorker. You can read his piece, They Didn't Know That We Were Here, New York's African Asylum Seekers, on newyorker.com now. This has been The Political Scene from The New Yorker. I'm Tyler Foggett. The show is produced by Michelle Moses with support from Sydney Cobb and Gianna Palmer. Our executive producer is Stephen Valentino. Our theme music is by Allison Leighton-Brown. Enjoy the rest of your week, and we'll see you next Wednesday. Wednesday.